Chapter Twenty One of The Tiger of Mysore by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Tiger of Mysore by G. A. Henty. Chapter Twenty One Home. It was early in December, 1792, that Dick Holland joined his regiment, which was stationed at Madras. There were but five other officers, and Dick found to his satisfaction that the junior of them had had four years' service. Consequently, he did not step over anyone's head, owing to his commission being dated nearly three years previously. As there were in the garrison many officers who had served on the general staff in the last war, Dick soon found some of his former acquaintances and the story of his long search for his father, and its successful termination, soon spread, and gained for him a place in civil as well as military society. The next year passed peacefully, and was an unusually quiet time in India. That Tippoo intended to renew the war as soon as he was able was well known to the government, and one of its chief objects of solicitude was the endeavor to counteract the secret negotiations that were constantly going on between him the Nizam, and the Marathis. Tippoo was known to have sent confidential messengers to all the great princes of India, even to the ruler of Afghanistan, inviting them to join the confederacy of the Marathis, the Nizam, and himself, to drive the English out of India altogether. Still greater cause for uneasiness was the alliance that Tippoo had endeavored to make with the French, who, as he had learned, had gained great successes in Europe, and believing from their account that their country was much stronger than England, he had sent envoys to the Mauritius to propose an offensive and defensive alliance against England. The envoys had been politely received, and some of them had proceeded to France, where Tippoo's proposal had been accepted. They committed France, indeed, to nothing, as she was already at war with England, but the French were extremely glad to embrace the proposal of Tippoo, as they overrated his power and believed that he would prove a formidable opponent to the English, and would necessitate the employment of additional troops and ships there, and so weaken England's power at home. To confirm the alliance, some sixty or seventy Frenchmen, mostly adventurers, were sent from the Mauritius as civil and military officers. Tippoo's council had been strongly opposed to this step on his part. They had pointed out to him that their alliance with a power at war with the English would render war between the English and him inevitable, and that France was not in a position to aid them in any way. The only benefit, indeed, that he could gain was the possibility that the 14,000 French troops in the service of the Nizam might revolt and come over to him. But even this was doubtful, as these were not troops belonging to the French government, but an independent body raised and officered by adventurers who might not be willing to imperil their own position and interests by embarking on a hazardous war at the orders of a far distant government. These events happened soon after Dick's return, but nothing was generally known of what was passing, although reports of Tippoo's proceedings had reached the government of India. The party of Frenchmen arrived at Seringapatam and were, at first, well received by Tippoo. But they had soon disgusted him by their assumption of dictatorial powers, while they, on their part, were disappointed at not receiving the emoluments and salary as they had expected. Most of them very speedily left his service. Some of the military men were employed at Bangalore and other towns in drilling the troops, and a few remained at Seringapatam neglected by Tippoo, 
whose eyes were now opened to the character of these adventurers. But this in no way shook his belief that he would obtain great aid from France, as he had received letters from official personages there, encouraging him to combine with other native powers to drive the English out of India, and promising large aid in troops and ships. When the Earl of Mornington, afterwards the Marquis of Wellesley, arrived at Calcutta as Governor-General of India, in May 1798, the situation had become so critical that although the war had not been absolutely declared on either side, Tippoo's open alliance with the French rendered it certain that hostilities must commence ere long, and Lord Mornington lost no time in proceeding to make preparations for war. As Lord Cornwallis had done, he found the greatest difficulty in inducing the supine government of Madras to take any steps. They protested that, were they to make any show of activity, Tippoo would descend the Ghats and at once ravage the whole country, and they declared that they had no force whatever they could withstand him. They continued in their cowardly inactivity, until the Governor-General was forced to override their authority altogether, and take the matter into his own hands. The first step was to curb the Nizam's power, for everything pointed to the probability that he intended to join Mysore, being inclined so to do by Tippoo's promises, and by the influence of the officers of the strong body of French troops in his service. Negotiations were therefore opened by Lord Mornington, who offered to guarantee the Nizam's dominions if he would join the English against Tippoo, and promised that after the war he should obtain a large share of the territory taken from Mysore. The Nizam's position was a difficult one. On one side of him lay the dominions of his warlike and powerful neighbor, Tippoo. On the other he was exposed to the incursions of the Marathis, whose rising power was a constant threat to his safety. He had, moreover, to cope with a serious rebellion by his son, Ali Jah, he was willing enough to obtain the guarantee of the English against aggressions by the Marathis, but he hesitated in complying with the preliminary demand that he should dispense with the French. The fighting powers of this body rendered them valuable auxiliaries, but he secretly feared them and resented their pretensions, which pointed to the fact that ere long, instead of being his servants, they might become his masters. When, therefore, the British government offered him a subsidiary force of six battalions, and to guarantee him against any further aggression by the Marathis, he accepted the proposal, but in a half-hearted way, that showed he could not be relied upon for any efficient assistance in disarming the French auxiliaries. No time was lost by the government in marching the promised force to Hyderabad. The French, fourteen thousand strong, refused to disband, and were joined by the Nizam's household force, which was in the French interest. The Nizam's, terrified by the prospect of a contest, the success of which was doubt was doubtful, abandoned the capital and took refuge in a fortress, there to await the issue of events, but positively refused to issue orders to the French to disband. Two of the English battalions, which were on the other side of the river to that on which the French were encamped, opened a destructive fire upon them, and with red-hot shot set fire to their magazines and storehouses, while the other four battalions moved into position to make a direct attack. The Nizam now saw that he had no alternative but to declare openly for the French, or to dismiss them. He preferred the latter alternative. Perron, who commanded the French, saw that unless he surrendered, the position of his force was desperate. Accordingly, on receipt of the order, he and his officers expressed their readiness to accept their dismissal. Their men were, however, in a state of mutiny, 
and the officers were compelled to make their escape from the camp under cover of night. The next morning the camp was surrounded by the English and the troops of the Nizam, and the French then surrendered, without a shot being fired. While the Nizam was thus rendered powerless, negotiations had been going on with the Marathis, but owing to the quarrels and jealousies of their chiefs, nothing could be done with them. It was, however, apparent that, for the same reason, Tippoo would equally fail in his attempt to obtain their alliance against us, and that, therefore, it was with Mysore alone that we should have to deal. In the meantime, though preparing for war, Lord Mornington was most anxious to avoid it. When Tippoo wrote to complain that some villages of his had been occupied by people from Coorg, the Governor-General ordered their immediate restoration to him. In November he sent the Sultan a friendly letter pointing out that he could look for no efficient aid from France, and that any auxiliaries who might possibly join him would only introduce the principles of anarchy, and the hatred of all religion that animated the whole French nation, that his alliance with them was really equivalent to a declaration of war against England, and as he was unwilling to believe that Tippoo was actuated by unfriendly feelings, or desired to break the engagements of the treaty entered into with him, he offered to send an officer to Mysore to discuss any points upon which variance might have arisen, and arrange a scheme that would be satisfactory to them both. To this letter no answer was received for five weeks, by which time Lord Mornington had arrived in Madras. He then received a letter containing a tissue of the most palpable lies concerning Tippoo's dealings with the French. Two or three more letters passed, but as Tippoo's answers were all vague and evasive, the Governor-General issued a manifesto on the 22nd of February, 1799, recapitulating all the grievances against Mysore, and declaring that, though the Allies were prepared to repel any attack, they were equally anxious to effect an arrangement with him. But Tippoo still believed that a large French army would speedily arrive. He had received letters from Bonaparte in person, written from Egypt, and saying that he had arrived on the borders of the Red Sea with an innumerable and invincible army full of the desire to deliver you from the iron yoke of England. Tippoo well knew also that although the Governor-General spoke for himself and his allies, the Nizam was powerless to render any assistance to the English, and that the Marathis were far more likely to join him than they were to assist his foes. The manifesto of Lord Mornington was speedily followed by action, for at the end of January an army of nearly thirty-seven thousand men had been assembled at Valor. Of these, some twenty thousand were the Madras force. With them were the Nizam's army, nominally commanded by Mir Alam, but really by Colonel Wellesley, afterward the Duke of Wellington, who had with him his own regiment, the 33rd, six thousand five hundred men under Colonel Dalrymple, three thousand six hundred twenty-one infantry, for the most part French troops, who had re-enlisted under us, and six thousand regular and irregular horse. Dick, who had now attained the rank of captain, had been introduced by one of Lord Cornwallis's old staff officers to General Harris, who, as general of the Madras army, was in command of the whole. On hearing of the services Dick had rendered in the last war, and that his perfect acquaintance with the language and with the ground over which the army would pass would enable him to be equally efficient on the present occasion, General Harris at once detached him from service with the regiment and appointed him to a post on his own staff. Had it not been that Dick had seen, for the last two years, that hostilities must ere long be commenced with Tippoo, he would before this have left the army and returned home. He was heartily tired of the long inaction. When the regiment was stationed at Madras, 
Life was very pleasant, but a considerable portion of his time was spent at outstations, where the duties were very light and there was nothing to break the monotony of camp life. He received letters regularly from his mother, who gave him full de details of their home life. The first that he received merely announced their safe arrival in England. The second was longer and more interesting. They had had no difficulty in discovering the address of Annie's father, and on writing to him he had immediately come up to town. He had lost his wife on his voyage home from India, and was overjoyed at the discovery of his daughter and at her return to England. He is, Dick's mother wrote, very much broken in health. Annie behaved very nicely. Poor child, it was only natural that, after what you did for her and our being all that time with her, the thought of leaving us for her parent, of whom she had no recollection, was a great grief. However, I talked it over with her many times, and pointed out to her that her first duty was to the father who had been so many years deprived of her, and that, although there was no reason why she should not manifest affection for us, she must not allow him to think for a moment that she was not as pleased to see him as he was to welcome her. She behaved beautifully when her father arrived, and when he had been in the house five minutes, and spoke of the death of his wife, his bitter regret that she had not lived to see Annie restored to them, the loneliness of his life, and how it would be brightened now that she was again with him. His words so touched her that she threw herself into his arms, and sobbed out that she would do all she could to make his life happy. He had, of course, received the letter we had written to him from Tripotli, and quite pained me by the gratitude he showed for what he called my kindness to his daughter. He said that by his post he should write to endeavour to express some of his feelings to you. Annie went away with him the next day to a place he had bought near Plymouth. He has promised to let us have her for a month every year, and we have promised to go down for the same time every summer to stay with her. He asks numberless questions about you, which neither I nor Annie are ever tired of answering. Even with a mother's natural partiality, I must own that her descriptions are almost too flattering, and he must think that you are one of the most admirable of men. Next, as to the jewels, your father took them to be valued by several diamond merchants, and accepted the highest offer, which was sixteen thousand pounds, of which he has already invested twelve in your name in shares in six ships. Four of these are Indiamen, the other two are privateers. He said that he did not think you would object to a quarter of the money being put into a speculative venture, and that they were both good craft, well-armed and well-commanded, with strong crews, and would, if successful, earn as much in a year as a merchantman would in ten. Since then the letters had been of a uniform character. The shares in the Indiamen were giving a good and steady return. The privateers had been very fortunate, and had captured some rich prizes. Annie had been up, or they had been down, at Plymouth. The letters during the last three years had reported her as having grown into a young woman, and, as his mother declared, a very pretty one. After that the allusions to her were less frequent, but it was mentioned that she was as fond of them as ever, and that she was still unmarried. "'She always asks when you are coming home, Dick,' Mrs. Holland said in the last letter he had received before accompanying General Harris to Valor. "'I told her, of course, that your last letter said that war was certain with Tippoo, that you hoped this time to see Seringapatam taken, and the tyrant's power broken, and that after it was over you would come home on leave, and perhaps would not go out again. During the six years that he had been in the army, Dick had very frequently been at Tripotli, as there was little difficulty in getting leave for a fortnight. His cousins had now grown up into young men, 
Surajah commanded the troop, and his stays there were always extremely pleasant. The troop now numbered two hundred, for with quiet times the population of the territory had largely increased, and the Rajah's income had grown in proportion. The troop was now dressed in uniform, and in arms and discipline resembled the irregular cavalry in the company's service. And when Dick arrived at Valor, he found his uncle and cousins there with their cavalry. "'I thought, Dick, of only sending the boys,' the Rajah said, but when the time came for them to start I felt that I must go myself. We have suffered enough at the hands of Mysore, and I do hope to see Tippoo's capital taken and his power of mischief put an end to for good and all.' "'I am glad indeed you are coming, uncle. You may be sure that, whenever I can get away from my duties with the general, I shall spend most of my time in your camp, though I must occasionally drop in on my own regiment.' The Rajah had already been down to Madras a month before, and with his sons had been introduced to General Harris, by the latter's chief of staff, as having been always like his father before him, a faithful ally of the English and as having accompanied Lord Cornwallis on the occasion of the last campaign in Mysore. The general had thanked him heartily for his offer to place his two hundred cavalry at the disposal of the government, and had expressed a hope that he as well as his sons would accompany it into the field. On the 11th of February, 1799, the army moved from Valor, but instead of ascending by the pass of Ambur, as had been expected, it moved southwest, ascending the pass of Paliod and on the ninth of March was established without opposition in Tippoo's territory, at a distance of eighty miles east of his capital. They then marched north until they reached a village ten miles south of Bangalore. This route, although circuitous, was chosen as the roads were better, the country more level, and cultivation much more general, affording far greater facilities for the collection of forage for the baggage animals. Hitherto nothing had been seen of the Mysorean army, it had been confidently expected that Tippoo would fight at least one great battle to oppose their advance against his capital, but so far no signs had been seen of an enemy, and even the Mysore horse, which had played so conspicuous a part in the last campaign, in no way interfered with the advance of the army, or even with the foraging parties. A dispatch that reached them by a circuitous route explained why Tippoo had suffered them to advance so far unmolested. While the Madras army had advanced from the southeast, a Bombay force, 6,500 strong, was ascending the western Ghats. As the advance brigade, consisting of three native battalions under Colonel Montresor, reached Sedasir, Tippoo, with 12,000 of his best troops, fell upon it suddenly. His force had moved through the jungle and attacked the brigade in front and rear. Although thus surprised by an enemy nearly six times their superior in force, the sepoys behaved with a calmness and bravery that could not have been surpassed by veteran troops. Maintaining a steady front, they repulsed every attack, until a brigade encamped eight miles in their rear came up to their assistance, and Tippoo was then forced to retreat, having suffered a loss of fifteen hundred men, including many of his best officers. This proof of the inferiority of his troops even when enormously outnumbering the English, and fighting with all the advantages of surprise, profoundly impressed Tippoo. And from this time he appeared to regard the struggle as hopeless, and displayed no signs whatever of the dash and energy that had distinguished him when leading one of the divisions of his father's army. He marched with his troops straight to Seringapatam, and then moved out with his whole force to give battle to the main body of the invaders. 
the antagonists came within sight of each other at the village of Malavilly, thirty miles east of the capital. For some time an artillery fire on both sides was kept up. Gradually the infantry became engaged, and the Mysoreans showed both courage and steadiness, until a column of two thousand men moved forward to attack the thirty-third regiment. The British troops reserved their fire until the column was within fifty yards of them. Then they poured in a withering volley and charged. The column fell back in disorder. General Floyd at once charged them with five regiments of cavalry, sabred great numbers of them, and drove the remainder back in headlong rout. The whole British line then advanced, cheering loudly. The first line of Tippoo's army fell back upon its second, and the whole then marched away at a speed that soon left the British infantry far behind them. Instead of continuing his march straight upon the capital, General Harris, learning from spies that Tippoo had wasted the whole country along that line, moved southwest, collecting as he went great quantities of cattle, sheep, and goats, and an abundance of grain and forage, crossed the Cauvery at a ford at Sausalet, and on the 5th of April took up his position at a distance of two miles from the western face of the fort of Seringapatam. This movement completely disconcerted Tippoo. He had imagined that the attack would, as on the previous occasion, take place on the northern side of the river, and had covered the approaches there with a series of additional fortifications, while on the other side he had done but little. So despondent was he that he called together his principal officers and said to them, "'We have arrived at our last stage. What is your determination?' His advisers took no brighter view of the prospect than he did himself. They had unanimously opposed the war, had warned Tippoo against trusting to the French, and had been adverse to measures that could but result in a fresh trial of strength with the English. The Sultan, however, while not attempting to combat their opinion, had gone on his own way, and his officers now saw their worst fears justified. They replied to his question, "'Our determination is to die with you.' On the day after arriving before Seringapatam, the British attacked the villages and rocky eminences held by the enemy on the south side of the river and drove them back under the shelter of their guns. General Floyd was sent with the cavalry to meet the Bombay force, and escort it to Seringapatam. This was accomplished, and although the whole of the Mysore cavalry and a strong force of infantry hovered round the column, they did not venture to engage it, and on the 14th the whole arrived at the camp before Seringapatam. The Bombay force, which was commanded by General Stuart, crossed to the north bank of the river and took up a position there, which enabled them to take in flank the outlying works and trenches with which Tippoo had hoped to prevent any attack upon the western angle of the fort, where the river was so shallow that it could be easily forded. Tippoo now endeavored to negotiate, and asked for a conference. General Harris returned an answer enclosing the draft of a preliminary treaty, with which he had been supplied before starting. It demanded one-half of Tippoo's territories, a payment of two millions sterling, and the delivery of four of his sons as hostages. Tippoo returned no reply, and on the 22nd the garrison made a vigorous sortie, and were only repulsed after several hours' fighting. For the next five days the batteries of the besiegers kept up a heavy fire, silenced every gun in the outlying works, and compelled their defenders to retire across the river into the fort. Tippoo now sank into such a state of despondency that he would listen to none of the proposals of his officers for strengthening the position, and would not even agree to the construction of a retrenchment, which would cut off the western angle of the fort, 
against which it was evident the attack would be directed. He knew that, if captured, there was little chance of his being permitted to continue to reign, and had indeed made that prospect more hopeless by massacring all the English prisoners who had by his order been brought in from the hill forts throughout the country on his return to Seringapatam, after the repulse he had suffered in his attack on the Bombay force. On the 2nd of May the batteries opened on the wall of the fort, near its northwest angle, and so heavy was their fire that by the evening of the 3rd a breach of sixty yards long was effected. General Harris determined to assault on the following day. General Baird, who had for four years been a prisoner in Seringapatam, volunteered to lead the assault, and before daybreak 4,376 men took their places in the advance trenches, where they lay down. It was determined that the assault should not be made until one o'clock, at which time Tipu's troops, anticipating no attack, would be taking their food and resting during the heat of the day. The troops who were to make the assault were divided into two columns, which, after mounting the breach, were to turn right and left, fighting their way along the ramparts until they met at the other end. A powerful reserve under Colonel Wellesley was to support them after they had entered. When the signal was given, the troops leapt from the trenches and, covered by the fire of the artillery, which at the same moment opened on the ramparts, dashed across the river, scaled the breach, and in six minutes from the firing of the signal gun planted the British flag on its crest. Then the heads of the two columns at once started to fight their way along the ramparts. At first the resistance was slight. Surprised and panic-stricken, the defendants of the strong works at this point offered but feeble resistance. Some fled along the walls. Some ran down into the fort. Many threw themselves over the wall into the rocky bed of the river. The right column in less than an hour had won its way along the rampart to the eastern face of the fort. But the left column met with a desperate resistance, for as each point was carried, the enemy, constantly reinforced, made a fresh stand. Most of the officers who led the column were shot down, and so heavy was the fire that several times the advance was brought to a standstill. It was not until the right column, making their way along the wall to the assistance of their comrades, took them in the rear, that the Mysoreans entirely lost heart. Taken between two fires, they speedily became a disorganized mass. Many hundreds were shot down, either in the fort or, as pouring out through the river gate, they endeavored to cross the ford and escape to the north. As soon as the whole rampart was captured, General Baird sent an officer with a flag of truce to the palace to offer protection to Tipu and all its inmates on condition of immediate surrender. Two of Tipu's younger sons assured the officer that the sultan was not in the palace. The assurance was disbelieved, and the princes being sent to the camp under a strong escort, the palace was searched. The officer in command, on being strictly questioned, declared that Tipu, who had in person commanded the defense made against the left column, had been wounded, and that he had heard he was lying in a gateway on the north side of the fort. A search was immediately made, and the information proved correct. Tipu was found lying there not only wounded, but dead. He had indeed received several wounds, and was endeavoring to escape in his palanquin, when this had been upset by the rush of fugitives striving to make their way through the gate. The gateway was indeed almost choked up with the bodies of those who had been either suffocated in the crush, or killed by their pursuers. On his palanquin being overturned, Tipu had evidently risen to his feet, and had at that same moment been shot through the head by an English soldier ignorant of his rank. In the evening he was buried with much state by the side of his father in the mausoleum of Lal Bang, 
at the eastern extremity of the island. It was with great difficulty that, when the British soldiers became aware of the massacre of their countrymen a few days before, they were restrained from taking vengeance upon his sons and the inmates of the palace. In the assault, eight thousand of the defenders were killed, while the loss of the British during the siege and in the assault amounted to 825 Europeans and 639 native troops. An enormous quantity of cannon, arms, and ammunition was captured, and the value of the treasure and jewels amounted to considerably over a million pounds besides the doubtlessly large amount of jewels that had in the first confusion fallen into the hands of the soldiers. As Dick, after the fighting had ceased, went, by order of the general, to examine the prisoners and ascertain their rank, his eye fell upon an old officer whose arm hung useless by his side, broken by a musket-ball. He went up to him and held out his hand. "'Mirza Mohammed Bakshai!' he exclaimed. "'I am glad to meet you again, although sorry to see that you are wounded.' The officer looked at him in surprise. "'You have spoken my name,' he said, "'but I do not know that we have ever met before.' "'We have met twice. The first time I was with a friend dressed as one of Tippoo's officers, and came to examine the state of Savandrug. The second time we were dressed as merchants, and I succeeded in effecting the liberation of my father. Both times I received much kindness at your hands, but far more grateful am I to you for your goodness to my father whose life you preserved i see you still carry the pistols i left for you and doubtless you also received the letter i placed with them thanks be to allah the old colonel said that we have thus met again truly i rejoiced when my first anger that i had been fooled passed away that your father had escaped and that without my being able to blame myself for carelessness your letter to me completed my satisfaction, for I felt that heaven had rightly rewarded the efforts of a son who had done so much, and risked his life for a father. Is he alive? Is he here? I should be glad to see him again, and indeed I missed him sorely. I have been here for two years, having been appointed to a command among the troops here. My father is well, and is in England. He will, I know, be glad indeed to hear that I have met you, for he will ever retain a grateful remembrance of your kindness. Now I must finish my work here, and will then go to the general and beg him to give me an order for your release. An hour later Dick returned with the order, and carried Mohammed Bakshai off to the Rajah's camp. Here his arm was set by one of the surgeons, and he was so well cared for by the Rajah, Dick, and Surajah, that a fortnight later he was convalescent, and was able to rejoin his wife in the town. "'I am thankful,' he said on leaving, "'that my life as a soldier is over, and that I shall never more have to fight against the English.' Tippoo was my master, but it is he who, by his cruelty and ambition, has brought ruin upon Mysore. I have saved enough to live in comfort for the rest of my life, and to its end I shall rejoice that I have again met the son of my friend Jack. The capture of Seringapatam was followed at once by the entire submission of the whole country. A descendant of the old Rajah of Mysore was placed upon the throne. His rule, however, was a nominal one. A very large amount of territory was annexed. The island of Serengapatam was permanently occupied as a British possession. The new Rajah was bound to receive and pay a large military force for the defense of his territories, not to admit any European foreigners into his dominions, to allow the company to garrison any fort in Mysore that might seem advisable to them, and to pay at all times attention to such advice as might be given him as to the administration of his affairs. He was, in fact, to be but a puppet, the British becoming the absolute rulers of Mysore. 
The family of Tippoo and the ladies of the harem were removed to Vellore, where they were to receive a palace suitable to their former rank and expectations, and allowances amounting to £160,000 a year. Thus Mysore, one of the most ancient and powerful of the kingdoms of India, fell into the hands of the English, owing to the ambition, bigotry, and besotted cruelty of the son of a usurper. Dick's part in all these operations had been a busy, although not a very dangerous one. The only share he had taken in the active fighting had been in the Battle of Malavilly, where, having been sent with a message to Colonel Floyd just before he led the cavalry to the assault of the column that had attacked the 33rd, he took his place by the side of the Rajah and his cousins, whose troop formed part of Floyd's command, and joined in the charge on the enemy. He had, however, rendered great services in the quartermaster's department, was very highly spoken of in the dispatches of General Harris, and his name appeared as promoted to the rank of Major in the list of honours promulgated by Lord Mornington at the termination of the campaign. His regiment was among those selected for the occupation of Mysore, and a month after the capture of the city he obtained leave to return to England. He stayed for a week at Tripatli, and then took an affectionate farewell of his uncle, the Rani, his cousins, and Surajah, and sailed from Madras a fortnight later. The ship in which he was a passenger was accompanied by two other Indiamen, and when a fortnight out they encountered a French frigate, which, however, they beat off, and arrived in England without further adventure. As soon as he landed, Dick drove to the house where his father and mother had taken up their residence on their arrival in England, but he found to his surprise that eight months before they had moved to another in the village of Hackney. He proceeded there and found it to be a considerably larger one than they had left, and standing in its own grounds, which were of some extent. He had written to them after the fall of Seringapatam, and told them that he should probably sail for England about six weeks later. As the vehicle drove to the door, his father and mother ran out, his father grasped his hand, and his mother threw her arms around his neck with tears of joy. As soon as the first greeting was over, Dick saw a young lady in deep mourning standing on the steps. He looked at her for a moment in surprise, and then exclaimed, "'It's Annie Mansfield!' Annie held out her hand and laughed. "'We have both changed almost beyond recognition, Dick.' Then she added demurely, "'The last time I had to ask you—' "'You shan't have to ask me again, Annie,' he said, giving her a hearty kiss. "'My first impulse was to do it, but I did not know whether your sentiments on the subject had changed.' "'I am not given to change,' she said. "'Am I, Mrs. Holland?' "'I don't think you are, my dear. I think there is a little spice of obstinacy in your composition. But come in, Dick. Don't let us stand talking here at the door, when we have so much to say to each other.' He went into the sitting-room with his father and mother, where Annie presently left them to themselves. "'Why, father, the privateers must have done well indeed,' Dick said, looking round the handsome room. "'I have nothing to grumble at on that score, Dick, though they have not been so lucky the last two years.' but it's not their profits that induced us to move here. You see, Annie was in mourning, her father died nearly a year ago, and at her earnest request, as he said in his will, appointed us her guardians until she came of age, which will be in a few months now. As he had no near relations, he left the whole of his property to her, and having been in India in the days when under Warren Hastings there were good pickings to be obtained, it amounted to a handsome fortune. She said that she should come and live with us, at any rate until she became of age, and as that house of ours, though a comfortable place, was hardly the sort of a house for an heiress, she herself proposed that we should take a larger house between us. And so here we are. 
We shall stay here through the winter, and then we are going down to her place at Plymouth for the summer. What we shall do afterwards is not settled. That must depend upon a variety of things. She has grown much prettier than I ever thought she would do, Dick said. Of course, I knew she'd have grown into a woman, but somehow I never realized it until I saw her, and I believe I have always thought of her as being still the girl I carried off from Seringapatam. In a few minutes Annie joined them, and the talk then turned upon India, and many questions were asked as to their friends in Tripatli. I suppose by this time, Annie, at least I hope I may still call you Annie. <laughs> if you call me anything else, I shall not answer, she said indignantly. Well, I was going to say, I suppose you have got a good deal beyond words of two letters now. I regard the question as an impertinent one. I have even mastered geography. The meaning of which word you may remember you explained to me, and I have a partial knowledge of history. The next day Dick met an old friend, Ben Burkett. Dick had kept his promise, and had written to him as soon as he returned to Tripatli with his father, and a few weeks after Captain Holland's return, his old shipmate came to see him and his wife. Ben had for some time thought of retiring, and he now left the sea, and settled down in a little cottage nearby. Captain Holland insisted upon settling a small pension upon him, and he was always a welcome guest at the house. His delight at Dick's return was extreme. "'I never thought you'd do it, Master Dick. Never for a moment. And when on coming home I got your letter and found out that the captain and your mother were in England, it just knocked me foolish for a bit.' Three weeks later Dick told Annie that he loved her. He spoke without any circumlocution, merely taking her hand one evening, when they happened to be alone together, and telling her so in plain words. "'I know nothing of women, Annie,' he said, "'or their ways. I have been bothering myself how to set about it, but though I don't know how to put it, I do know that I love you dearly. All these years I've been thinking about you, not like this, you know, but as the dear plucky little girl of the old days.' "'The little girl of old days, Dick,' she said quietly, "'is in no way changed. I think you know what I thought of you then.' I have never for a moment wavered. I gave you all the love of my heart, and you have had it ever since. Why, you silly boy, she said with a laugh a few minutes later. I had begun to think that, just as I had to ask you for a kiss in the old times, and again when you met me, I should have had to take this matter in hand. Why, I never thought of anything else. Directly I got old enough to look upon myself as a woman, and young men began to come to the house, I said to my dear father, It's of no use their coming here, father. My mind has been made up for years, and I shall never change. He knew at once what I meant. I don't blame you, my dear, he said. Of course you are young at present, but he has won you fairly, and if he is at all like what you make him out to be, I could not leave you in better hands. He will be home in another three or four years, and I shall have the comfort of having you with me until then. But you must not make too sure of it. He may fall in love out there. You know that there is plenty of society in Madras. I laughed at the idea. All the pretty ones either come out to be married or get engaged on the voyage or before they've been there a fortnight. I have no fear, father, of his falling in love out there, though I don't say he might not when he gets home, for of course he thinks of me only as a little girl. Well, my dear, he said, we will get him and his father and mother to come down as soon as he gets home. As you have made up your mind about it, it's only right that you should have the first chance. It was not to be as he planned, Dick, but, you see, I have had the first chance, and it's well it was so, for no one can say how matters would have turned out if I had not been on the spot. Do you know, Dick, I felt that when you rescued me from slavery, 
you became somehow straight away my lord and master. As you carried me that night before you, I said to myself I should always be your little slave, and you see, it has come quite true. Oh, I don't know about that, Annie. We are in England now, and there are no slaves. You'll be the mistress now, and I your devoted servant. It will be as I say, Dick, she said tenderly. I feel that to the end of my life I shall remain your willing slave. There was nothing to prevent an early marriage. It was settled that Captain and Mrs. Holland should retain the house, which indeed they could well afford to do, and that Dick and Annie should reside there whenever they were in town, but that as a rule they would live at the estate of her father, which he had purchased near Plymouth. Their means were ample, for during the eight years he was in the service, Dick's twelve thousand pounds had, as his father had predicted, doubled itself, and Annie's fortune was at least as large as his own. Dick had good reason to bless at the end of his life his mother's plan, that had resulted in the double satisfaction of restoring his father to her, and in winning for himself the woman who he ever regarded as the dearest and best wife in the world. End of the Tiger of Mysore by G. A. Henty Recording by Mike Harris